0: Hi, my name is Eric and I'm an addict. According to the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association, I have a disease. Now I want to make clear that for me to have a disease with methamphetamine, I had to have committed a crime to attain that disease. Is addiction treated as a disease? And these are some of the questions that I want to explore. As some people know, I am not a participant of the 12-step program. There are a lot of reasons for this, and I want to talk about some of those today. I am an advocate for those that are out there struggling. I'm also a voice for those that we have lost, and I think it's really important for me to discuss this topic today because I want to be a part of helping people to save their own lives. I may upset some, in the fashion because I may sound like I am talking against the 12-step program, which I am not. The 12-step program has a great foundation. As a counselor and a teacher, I encourage people to attend the 12-step program, to be a part of it, to check it out, to see if it's something that can be helpful for them. But I also understand that a lot of the clients and the people that I work with and have worked with over the years, I do know that some people, and I know who they are, when they leave the program, they will not attend a 12-step program. It discourages me when I work with clinical people or support staff at the treatment programs that will define the 12-step program as the only way and will tell this to the clients that if you don't get a sponsor, work the steps, or go to meetings, that you're going to get loaded. And as I said, it really discourages me when I hear things like that, because what are they actually doing to help these people? Statistics have shown that 40% of people in recovery have never gone to a treatment program or have ever gone to a 12-step meeting. And I think it's important for people to understand. I also wanted to discuss in this podcast, some of the things that are taught in treatment programs and the 12-step programs That become excuses for people to go out and use and to go out and get loaded. And I think it's important for people to be aware of these things so that we can think about and help the people to maintain long-term sobriety, which is ultimately our goal. We then come to the topic... harm reduction. And I discussed this with Jody Barber in a prior podcast who's a huge advocate on harm reduction. I too am a firm believer in harm reduction because I would much rather see people survive and live than die. Now a lot of people firmly disagree with the concept of the needle exchange program because they believe that they are encouraging drug use. What if we were able to offer a needle exchange program so that we can actually Actually, have access to the people that are struggling without a program like this there's a lot of people that you would never be able to reach even if your goal was to help people become clean and sober how are you going to reach these people that are using heroin or using methamphetamine intravenously without having some kind of path to be able to talk to these individuals and that's where the needle exchange program has been something that has been useful to be able to talk to and to help these people. Sure, we may pass on needles, but at some point in time they may return and have an interest or a desire to stop and to do something differently. So does the 12-step program believe in harm reduction? Has it ever? And the answer to that is yes, and I want to explain that. And this is one of the inconsistencies that we see in the 12-step program. One of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill W., so it was in 1935 in Akron, Ohio, there was a meeting of two alcoholics. Now, about a year before the meeting, one of them, Bill W., who I'd mentioned, had had a spiritual experience that was the major precipitating event in his becoming abstinence. Then he went on a business trip to Akron. After about a year of sobriety, he had this huge, strong desire to drink. And this is where he hit on the idea of seeking out and talking with another suffering alcoholic as an alternative to taking that first drink. Now some people know the historical factors behind Bill W and his interest in using LSD. Now it has been described that Bill W's interest in using LSD was to assist and to help alcoholics and he actually had a belief that LSD might cure alcoholism. So it was in the 50s that he started taking LSD and was experimenting with it. So what is the definition of harm reduction? So harm reduction is an approach to treating those with alcohol and other substance use problems that does not require patients to commit to complete abstinence before the treatment ultimately potentially begins. So when we define a relapse, for instance, we're saying returning to a substance that alters our state of consciousness, that alters our nervous system, central nervous system. And so by Bill W. taking LSD, which does alter our state of consciousness, he potentially has relapsed according to what the definition is today. Although according to his reasoning, he did it for helping other alcoholics. And that is exactly what harm reduction is. So does the 12-step program believe in harm reduction? Well, according to Bill W., he did. In my book, Pain, Failure, and Misery Are the Stepping Stones to Success, I discuss in a chapter the dangerous teachings of the individuals that are in treatment programs that could be clinicians and individuals in the 12-step program. Now, I'm not saying that the sayings or the teachings are bad in and of themselves, but a lot of people are not really aware of the dangers and things that they're ultimately promoting that clients use and utilize to relapse. And I want to talk about a couple of things. And as a very analytical thinker, which has ultimately been a problem, they a lot of times talk about the fact that the 12-step program is a simple program for very complex individuals, which in some cases can be very true. But I want to introduce everybody, and I talk about this with people, and I've talked about this with clients and other clinicians, the dangers of the way that I ultimately introduced myself in this podcast, that my name is Eric, and I am an addict. Now, I don't say this to get people to not do this, because we do understand why people say this in the 12-step program. My name is Eric, and I'm an addict, and a lot of people define that as a reason for helping me remember but I want to introduce you to conflicting ideas that contradict what this idea is to say this in the meeting over and over and over. Now, a lot of people have heard this statement, and this is also posted on boards that I've seen in a lot of meetings, whether they be a lot of clubs, and this is what the statement is. Your beliefs become your thoughts your thoughts become your words, your words become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become your values, and your values become your destiny. And the reason I'm saying this is because I hear this over and over and over and have heard this over and over and over in 12-step meetings. And like I said, I'll see this on posters that are hanging in the meetings. So based on what Gandhi said, If my belief that I am an addict is ultimately becoming what my thoughts are because I say this in a meeting. Now those thoughts that I've said that my name is an addict become my words. These words that I'm saying become my actions. What do addicts do? Addicts use. What do alcoholics do? Alcoholics drink. So since my words of what I'm saying become my action of going out and using, that using becomes a habit, which is something that I can definitely attest to. And then that habit ultimately becomes my value. So that drug ultimately becomes, or that using, becomes what is most important. And what is most important becomes my destiny. And the reason I say this, again, is not to tell people not to do this, but to get people to think. Think about this. Am I setting myself up? Is there a sense of self-fulfilling prophecy by me saying over and over and over, that my name is Eric and I am an addict, or my name is Eric and I'm an alcoholic. Something to think about. So when I discuss the statements and the sayings that people hear and ultimately use them as excuses to relapse, one of them that I want to talk about is I have a disease. Now, whether you define this as a disease or not, to me, this definition really doesn't matter because for me, and throughout all of my experience if I go out and use the same exact thing is gonna happen whether it be a disease or it be a behavior and none of that stuff really matters to me because I have an awareness that tells me exactly what is gonna happen if I go out and use so why am I saying that using the disease idea is an excuse. And here's what it comes down to. I've been to many meetings and I've heard a lot of stories and a lot of people that were in the program, they left, they relapsed, and they ended up coming back. And the excuse part comes into the idea that the individual states, I slipped, I fell, I have a disease. And ultimately taking no responsibility For the choices that were ultimately made and blaming it on this disease. Unless that is changed, unless the individual takes responsibility, that person is not going to get any better because that disease can continue. If you couple that with Bill W.'s statement that there's no mental defense against the first drink and you combine that idea with it is a disease and the person doesn't take responsibility for it, that person's in trouble. Relapse is a choice. Relapse is a choice that we make, whether you want to define it as a disease or not. I have never known anybody to slip, fall, a needle get jammed in their arm, or honestly even walk aimlessly with no mental capacity over to a drug dealer to pick up drugs and to relapse. It doesn't happen that way. I've relapsed many times in my past And I can attest to the fact that every relapse that I had was a choice that I made. Granted, it was a bad choice, but it still was a choice that I made. So there has to be a responsibility part to come into play for anybody to get better. You can't blame this on a disease. One of the sayings that I hear a lot is, one day at a time. And I might have said this before in a podcast, but one day at a time is how I lived when I was using Everything was about right here, right now. I need my drug. I'm not thinking about tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes. It's all about today. That's it. And I hear people say this over and over and over. One day at a time in the program is used and designed to say that, okay, I'm not going to use today. So I'm only going to worry about today. One day at a time. But none of this is really explained in detail to people. And people are not encouraged to look beyond today and into making plans for the future. What are your plans? What are you going to do? I just live one day at a time. We do have to understand that the only moment that you're ever going to enjoy is right here and right now. You can't enjoy five minutes from now and you can't enjoy 10 minutes ago. The only Time that we will truly enjoy anything is right here and right now. But we have to learn how to balance the concept of enjoying today but planning for the future. The people that I see that have long term sobriety are people that have goals, they have dreams, they have a vision, they have passions for something. They're reaching, they're reaching for something that they truly want in their life. That is also based on the motivation that doesn't ever have to go away. Because when I achieve a goal, I can reach for a new goal. The reason everybody comes into treatment and originally gets sober is because they're motivated by moving away from some kind of painful experience in life. But the problem with that motivation, if it's never changed, is that one will never last. If I'm arrested, eventually I'll be off parole, off probation, I won't have anything over my head. If it's family issues and I stay clean and sober for a while and I get all that trust back and the pain goes away, there's nothing that's keeping me clean and sober. And so part of what I always try to do, especially with the people I work with, is start to promote, what do you want? Where are you going? What are you doing? What are your dreams? Because those are the things that will help people. Because now all of a sudden, they're doing it for themselves. And they're not doing it for anybody else. If it's pain, you're doing it for a judge. You're doing it for a family. You're doing it so you don't get a divorce. Another one that I hear a lot from people is, let go and let God. Thy will be done. And in my book, again, I discuss this idea that we need to teach people that God will not do for you what you can do for yourself. Every religious text out there, whether it be the Christian Bible, the Quran, even the Hindu Bible, attests to the fact that God will not do for you what you can do for yourself. The serenity prayer God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. We have to put effort. God will not do for us what we can do for ourselves. And so every time that I hear anybody that uses that as an excuse of thy will be done, they're setting themselves up by not doing the things that ultimately they can do for themselves. So why do I not participate in the 12-step program? And this is what I really wanted to share. And again, like I said, I know this can upset people when I say things like this, but this is something important for me to get out there. And I want people to hear this. Again, I'm not a discourager of the 12-step program. The 12-step program was a foundation for me. It helped me in the beginning, but I realized at some point in time that I can't stop there. Every time that I hear people say, all you need to do is get a sponsor, work the steps and go to meetings, you're helping to set people up because that is absolutely a dishonest statement for people to find a successful, happy life, because I don't find much today a lot of self-esteem and a lot of support in terms of thinking for myself and not thinking through the minds of others. Once I came to a realization in my recovery that what I was told to do was to listen to my sponsor, do what my sponsor says, and I worked on my self-love and caring about myself, I came to a realization that my sponsor may not always have the best direction for me. I have to learn to think for myself. I want to tell you a quick story, and this was something that really got to me, was a friend of mine who had hepatitis C, and his viral load was getting higher and higher. And his doctor had told him that we need to do the treatment. And back at this point in time, it was interferon and ribavirin, which of course does have very negative consequences as a result of the symptoms that a lot of people experience. My ex-wife went through the same treatment. She lost her hair. She ended up having anemia, needed to have a blood transfusion, but his sponsor decided to tell him not to do the treatment and to take herbs. Now, one of the things that we know about herbs and a lot of the supplements is that it is very, very hard and difficult on your liver. And as a result of him listening to his sponsor, he ended up with cirrhosis of the liver. I want everybody to understand what a sponsor does. A sponsor is never mentioned one time in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The 12 steps do not define that you need to do it with a sponsor. The fifth step says we admitted to God, ourselves, and another human being The exact nature of our wrongs. That other human being is not defined as who that is. It could be anybody. I do encourage for you to do the fifth step that you do do it with somebody that understands what you're ultimately doing. And so somebody that is in recovery can be more helpful than some random person that doesn't know anything. So it does make sense. But the point that I'm trying to make is I want everybody to understand and realize what a sponsor is. A sponsor is somebody to help you work the steps, period. That's it, nothing else. They are not your doctor. They are not your lawyer. They are not to decide and define what they want for you because part of this is about achieving what we want for ourselves. What do I want? Where do I want to go? I don't want to go necessarily where my sponsor wants me to go. So I need to learn to start to think for myself. I used to go to this meeting at an Alano club And there was a group of people that came from a sober living house that was local. And I was newly back in recovery at the point in time when I had gotten out of custody. And I heard three or four individuals that said the exact same thing. I got up this morning. I got on my knees. I prayed. I read chapter three, so on and so on and so on. And I heard this over and over and over. And it was the exact same thing, person after person after person. And I couldn't understand what these people were doing in the sense of why they were saying the exact same thing. And so I had gone up to somebody and I would asked them about that. And they had actually mentioned that yeah, they come from the specific sober living and they're told to say this at every meeting that they go to over and over and over. And again, it made me realize how the 12-step program does not teach people to think for themselves. None of that's going to have any meaning to anybody. If I'm told something by somebody else and I repeat that over and over and over, it doesn't necessarily mean that I believe it. It's just something that I'm saying because I was told to say that. And so part of what recovery is, is about finding something that means something to me. It's based on the concept of, you know, me telling somebody that you're an addict or you're an alcoholic over and over and over. And unless they believe it themselves, it doesn't have any meaning to it. I remember my ex-girlfriend that I write about in my book, who I had taken to a detox when she decided that she didn't want to do it anymore because of our arrests. And after being arrested two times on her side and it being my third time, she decided that she was done and she didn't want to do it anymore. And so I had taken her to a detox program. And after the detox, you went into a treatment program slash sober living house and i had gone to visit her which again is something that you're not really supposed to do because obviously i wasn't clean and sober and i was using a lot of methamphetamine but i remember her saying there when i had gone to visit her that i am an alcoholic talking about herself and she laughed about it because she didn't drink at all but it was the people in the Alcoholics Anonymous program that just kept reiterating to her that you are an alcoholic, you are an alcoholic, you are an alcoholic. Reality being that she was a meth addict, but I found it kind of funny in terms of the way that she described it back to me that I'm an alcoholic, (laughs) even though she didn't drink. So again, the concept of teaching people how to think for themselves, because it has to have some kind of meaning to it. So some of the people in the 12-step program, and this is where I really started to struggle, was in terms of watching how they treated the newcomers and the other people in the program sometimes. And everybody stands on this concept of we have to follow the traditions, but are they really following the traditions? After I had relapsed back in 2013, I went to treatment. And when I'd gone out, I went to an outpatient program and I got back to the 12-step program. And I remember going to this meeting. I wasn't far from where I lived and I was sitting in the meeting and I probably had maybe six months or less sober. And I'm sitting in this meeting and there was just crosstalking all around. And I have ear problems. When I was a child, I had tubes put in my ears three or four times. Every time a doctor looks in there, they can tell, well, because of all the scar tissue. And so when I'm sitting in a room and somebody is sharing, and then there's all this background noise going on, I can't hear at all what the person is saying. And so there were people sharing after sharing after sharing, and I couldn't hear a word or really understand what anybody was saying because all the cross-talking that was going on. And so I decided to raise my hand and I told of that problem that I had. I explained the lack of appreciation of everybody that was sitting in the group and that was talking and cross-talking and didn't seem to really care about what was ultimately going on. And it kind of made me realize I don't really know what the point of me being in here is because of the what I define as disrespect, especially for the person that's actually sharing. Now, because I was talking about the group and probably made some people feel uncomfortable in the group, it was dead silent. Nobody was cross-talking. And at the end of my share, I stopped. I said, thank you for letting me share. And somebody in the meeting shouts out, fuck you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I found it Really kind of disturbing to me, this same meeting and even other meetings that I was going to, we would get in there and I would sit down and I would hear somebody, usually the leader of the meeting that would tell everybody, if you're a newcomer, shut your fucking mouth and open your fucking ears. And again, that really kind of got to me because I started realizing what is the point of me being here? I've always found it so important to work on my self-esteem and boost myself up and learn to care about myself. And I also tell clients that if I'm in an environment where I don't feel inspired or I'm associating with people that are not respecting me or treating me poorly, to get rid of those people in my life. And so that was one of the reasons I also sort of moved away from it. I also realized at that point how so many of these meetings, they don't abide by the traditions of the program. So what are the traditions, and what are some of them that they ultimately violate? One of them being tradition number two. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants they do not govern. So how does anybody have the authority to say that a newcomer can't share. And we're talking about the ultimate authority is a loving God. So why are we treating people like that? Why are we saying things like that? So if you combine the loving authority and the only authority as God... And that the individuals in the meetings are nothing but trusted servants. Let's look at tradition number three. Let's look at tradition number three. And I encourage everybody to read it from the 12 traditions. And there's a story in there about a gentleman named Ed. Ed was a power driver. And Ed came into the meetings and he always had an idea on how to improve it. Now, this is also very common with newcomers. Newcomers always seem to have the answers and know exactly what it is. Ed was an atheist which created a lot of problems based on what the steps were in the program. And he always came along with this idea of this God nonsense. And the last thing that these old timers wanted him to do was to share, because they knew that it was going to bring a sense of blasphemy. But Ed proceeded to stay sober. And there was a point in time where he came up to speak at a meeting. Everybody shivered. Everybody was uncomfortable with him getting ready to talk. And so he told about his family— And how his family had reunited. He talked about the joys of the 12 step work, but then he said something that became very troublesome and he cried out that I can't stand this God stuff. It's a lot of malarkey for weak folks. This group doesn't need it and I won't have it. To hell with it. So obviously they let this guy share. Everybody was outraged, resented Ed for what he was saying. They were saying, out he goes. So the elders and the old timers pulled him aside and they said, you can't talk like this around here. You'll have to quit it or get out, which always seems to be the concern of why are we concerned about newcomers that are speaking? So Ed did something, and he reached over to a bookshelf. He took out a thing of papers, and on top of them, laid the forward to the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he read aloud, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. And Ed said, when you guys wrote that sentence, did you mean it? or didn't you? And the elders knew that he kind of had them, but Ed stayed sober month after month. Every time he'd come to a meeting, he talked against God. The group was, according to what it says, in anguish so deep that all fraternal charity had vanished. When, oh when, grown members to one another. Will that guy get drunk? So Ed got a sales job, took him out of town, and at the end of a few days, the news came in. He'd sent a telegram for money, and everybody knew what that meant. Then he got on the phone, and in those days, according to what it says, we'd go anywhere on a 12-step job, no matter how unpromising. But this time, nobody stirred. Leave him alone. Let him try it by himself for once. Maybe he'll learn a lesson. So a couple weeks later, Ed went into an A member's house and really wasn't known by the family. He went to bed. So there was a noise that was heard on the stairs. Ed appeared, and he had a smile on his lips. And he said, have you fellows had your morning meditation? So the story came out that Ed went to a cheap motel, and after all of his pleas for help, some words came in his mind. And what those words were, they have deserted me. I've been deserted by my own kind. This is the end. Nothing is left. So he stayed on the bed, and his hand went across and touched a book. He opened the book, and it was a Gideon Bible. But, ne- but Ed never confided any more of what he saw and he felt in that hotel room. So apparently it was 1938, and he hasn't had a drink since. Now old-timers who remember Ed think, what if we had actually succeeded in throwing Ed out for blasphemy? What would have happened to him and all the others he later helped? And as the end of that tradition says, so the hand of providence early gave us a sign That any alcoholic is a member of our society when he says so. And I think that's so important for people to understand. The newcomer, the old timer, they're all the same. The tradition actually says the only requirement is a desire to stop. So you don't actually even have to be clean and sober. As long as you say that you're a member or that you have a desire to stop and you're just as important. And what's the goal of the the old timers? To help the newcomers to pass the message on. If the newcomer needs to share and needs to talk, why not? What are you worried about? What are you afraid of? Let that person talk. If we're here to help the newcomer, how am I going to know what their problems are? How am I going to know what I need to help them with if they don't have an opportunity to share? Maybe they want to share out loud in group. A lot of people think, well, maybe talk to me after group. Maybe they don't want to. Maybe the point that they want to talk is right here and right now in the group in the meeting with everybody the only requirement is a desire and they're a member according to the tradition if they say so so then we come to tradition five which is each group has but one primary purpose one purpose to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers one purpose and so the authority is a loving god The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. So the newcomer is just as important. And your purpose, your single purpose, is to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Sometimes that means we got to let the person talk so we can find out what's going on. This tradition also concludes with the concept of the purpose of a sponsor. And this is what it says. Now concludes the old-timer. Suppose I'd been obliged to talk to this man on religious grounds. Suppose my answer had to be that AA needed a lot of money, that AA went in for education, hospitals, and rehabilitation. Suppose I'd suggested that I'd take a hand in his domestic and business affairs. Where would we have wound up? No place, of course. And that's the purpose, is the message of the program, not medical conditions, not legal issues, but of the program, the sole purpose So we don't give advice on things outside of what the 12-step program is based on. So we can carry that message. So then we come to Tradition 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need to always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. Attraction rather than promotion. And to me, I read this and I, I think about the concept that we want to behave, act in ways that appeal or that attract. An attraction to me is when I see people that are clean and sober, that are happy, that are enjoying life, that are respectful, and that are the kind of people that I would want to associate with. So when I go to meetings and I hear this disrespect and I hear, you know, I expect that stuff from newcomers but when I see these things from old timers. So part of the reason that I wanted to talk about this is because of the hypocrisy that we see within the 12-step program, because everybody seems to be, or they state, that they are grounded within the traditions of the program. At the end of Tradition 11, in the 12 and 12, it says, in it, each member becomes an active guardian of our fellowship. This tradition is a constant and practical reminder that personal ambition has no place in AA. And so, so many things have changed from what the original concepts of AA were founded on. Harm reduction, like I said, one of the most discouraging things that I've found over the years, and personally what I see as very dangerous, is individuals that I've worked with in treatment programs and that leave, and they go home, and sometimes it's out of state. They get a sponsor, they're going to meetings, and the individual that was in treatment when they left, they were ultimately diagnosed with major depression, or anxiety, or things that they had used drugs to self-medicate themselves. And they'll return home, they'll get a sponsor, and the sponsor will tell them that if you are on any medications, and it can be non-narcotic, that you are not clean and sober, and that you need to stop these medications. And over and over and over, I've seen individuals that will follow the direction of their sponsor. Again, they're not doctors. Even if they are doctors, they're not their doctor. And they end up relapsing and return to the treatment program that I had worked at. And to me, this is dangerous. Again, one of my points is to be an advocate and to help save people's lives. Sobriety can be great. Sobriety can be fun. Let's stop pushing things of our importance, of what we want, because it may not be what they want. So now I want to explain something that's very important. And the major reason that I decided to do this podcast was because I want people out there in the 12-step program to listen very closely to this, because I think this is extremely important. As a counselor and a clinician that works in the substance abuse industry, I want to be able to refer people to an organization or to a self-help program that is actually out there to truly help people, not to harm people. And so I'm going to explain to you the perspective of clients and what I hear over and over and over from what the 12-step program ultimately looks like. And I'm going to throw in some of my own perspectives that I have gained by watching all of the things that currently happen out there. So the first thing that happens is that many sponsors will basically assume or expect that you're going to have an individual who has spent years breaking rules, violating rules, and to come into an organization like Alcoholics Anonymous or any of the 12-step programs out there, and you're making an assumption that they are going to follow all the rules or you will not work with them. I've heard this over and over. I have a lot of friends that are in the 12-step program that are fantastic. But if what I'm saying bothers you, then maybe there's something within you that maybe you need to look at. So many sponsors will tell individuals that if you don't do this, 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 and this, that I will not work with you. Again, we're making an assumption that these are people that have broken rules and that now are going to come in and follow all the rules. The primary purpose of the 12-step program is to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. You're dealing with somebody that is suffering, and you're telling these individuals that I'm not going to work with you unless you do what I want you to do. That's one of the perspectives. Also, if you're not ready, why don't you go out and get loaded And come back when you are ready so potentially we're offering a death sentence to people we're telling them that hey you know what you don't seem to be highly motivated you don't seem to truly want this thing so why don't you go out and get loaded go slam some heroin go do some stuff and then come back when you're ready do they make it back are you encouraging them to go out and die potentially and sometimes and yes i have seen that i've heard it from a client that this is what they were told in the 12-step program they did end up going out and getting loaded, and we never saw them again, and they ended up passing away. That is a reality, and that is a truth, and that is something, again, that I have seen before. So according to the story that I told you, the individual who was not not welcomed in the 12-step program by the old timers? Because they were concerned about what he was going to share. He was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. Welcome to, mo- Welcome to the majority of people that come into the 12-step program. And there's a reason for this. One of the things that we teach in recovery is this idea of post-acute withdrawal. Post-acute withdrawal, as an explanation, is obviously after the acute withdrawal. The substances are gone. The drug's out of the body. But they're still ultimately experiencing symptoms as a result of the brain damage that's been caused as a result of their drug use. One of the major symptoms of post-acute withdrawal is inability to think clearly. Also related closely to that is a difficulty with abstract thinking. If you don't believe me, look it up. It is one of the major symptoms of post-acute withdrawal, inability for abstract thinking. What's that related to? I won't believe in anything that I cannot touch, taste, smell, or hear, and so a belief in this power greater than myself or a higher power or God, as it is described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, is going to be a difficult grasp early on in the program. So you have an individual that comes in who wants to share, who likes to talk, but the old timers, they shut him down. They do allow him to talk, but then they confront him afterwards and tell him how that is inappropriate with the things that he shared. He gets a job. He goes out of town. Things go bad. Things go wrong. There's a message sent. The old timers basically say, you know what, I don't like this guy, so we're not going to go help him. Let him figure it out on his own. So what does this message say? You know what, he figured it out on his own. So what does that message say? Do you really need the 12-step program? Because he was able to do it on his own. So all the people out there that say, the 12-step program, you have to do it, you have to have it, or you're not going to get clean and sober, this guy proved it. The opposite. He was able to do it. These old-timers regretted it. He had to figure out the path. He found God, but it took him a little bit of time. So sometimes patience is what we ultimately need to have. The last idea that I want to talk about before ending this podcast goes back to the attraction. Attraction. So what we're basically saying when we behave and act the way that I see in the majority of the meetings out there is, please join our meeting so that you also can become angry, disrespectful, resentful, treat people poorly, and we will welcome A similar concept to religion. When you have individuals in Christianity that promote Christianity, that talk about, I'm a Christian, but then are angry, resentful, treat people poorly, and do, how welcoming is that? Hey, please, join our church, or join our religion, or join our organization, because we hate you. That's almost the way it sounds sometimes in the 12-step program. Disrespect, anger, and hatred don't appear to me to be a very welcoming idea. What is welcoming? Come on in. We love you care about you please if you want to share please share tell us about yourself if you have a lot of anger and you need to say things that are uncomfortable for other people to hear that's okay because what I am here for is to help you that's what's important the paradox of the program it is a selfish program but how do we get better we get better by helping others what is helping others look like we don't put their lives in danger we don't tell them to go out and get loaded if they're not ready maybe we need to educate maybe we need to help them we need to encourage them and not open up that coffin door for them. Again, for me, this is something very passionate because my goal as an advocate is for those people that are out there suffering. And when they come in the door and I get an opportunity to talk to them, I make sure that they feel welcome, that they feel respected. I'm here to also offer that voice to those that we've lost. What does that voice look like? Sadly, These are individuals that have been through the 12-step program, that have been through treatment program, and these are also people that I've heard some of the things that I've talked about on this podcast. I'm not blaming the 12-step program, but I'm trying to educate two people to help people understand what it looks like to help people. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. I look forward to more, and I hope you have a great rest of the day.